Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, that is Jesus, having come from Jerusalem. Now, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defile, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups and pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And he answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and let he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is Corbin, that it is a gift to God. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. Let's stop there for now. That's a powerful reproof, to say the least, what Jesus is saying here. So these guys, these religious leaders, obviously we know that they feared the people. They felt very threatened by the popularity of Jesus with the common people. And they're opposed to Jesus. I mean, when, when they went out to see John the Baptist about a year before this, he said, who warned you, brood of vipers, to flee from the wrath to come? I mean, these guys are just, they're religious vipers. And again, John the Baptist called them snakes. Like, he, he the greatest of all prophets, called them snakes. And he called them out for their hearts. And they trusted in the physical things. John the Baptist said to these guys, do not say we have Abraham for a father, for God is able to raise up these rocks to be the descendants of Abraham. And they were that kind of, they were very religious outwardly, but as Jesus says, their hearts were far from the Lord. They traveled 60 miles from Jerusalem to come up and confront Jesus. So they had a lot of time to fester with their bitterness, bitterness, their envy, their strife. And they're not coming to hear and receive the word. They're not coming to contemplate what Jesus is saying or maybe consider or reevaluate his teachings. They are coming to find fault. It's tough to live life when you try and find fault. Some people can't filter themselves from finding fault. We know people like that. Some people, no matter what you say, they'll say something negative. Or some people, no matter how positive you say something is, they'll find fault with it. And it's a terrible way to live your life. Please, in Jesus' name, do not live your life like that. Do not be a fault finder. We want to look for the good in people. We want to look for the potential of what God can do in people's lives when they touch his garment or are healed from a flow of blood. You follow me? We want to look for the good in what God is capable of doing, and we want to see the best in people and hope for the best because love bears all things and love hopes all things and it believes all things, and that's how we want to be. And it's a shame these people were very religious. They appear to be religious. The common people thought they were religious, and yet they were hypocrites and they were far from the Lord. They traveled 60-plus miles in a walking journey to find fault. You know, when I did my prayer walk through Southern California 10 years ago before the election in 08, and I prayed through city, for cities and prayed for the country and various things, the farther I went, the more I was broken before the Lord that I'm nothing, he's everything, and he's got 
got the universe in his hands. The purpose of a 60-mile walk is not to find more fault and become more embittered. The purpose of a 60-mile walk is to think about who you are, who God is, and to humble yourselves before the Lord. And they did not do that. It's too bad. They came to Jesus, and they looked at external things like, as if washing your hands with me has anything to do with being spiritual. Now, it's good hygiene. You know, we know that. But it has nothing to do with being spiritual. We just got to understand the context here. But the more you put on impressing people or external religious performance, the more it is exterior and not interior. And the more you can fool some of the people most of the time. But that's hypocrisy. So what good is it if you wash your hands and do all these ceremonies outwardly, but inwardly your heart is filled with evil and malice toward people, which Jesus will cover in the next segment of scripture we get to tonight. So they're hypocrites. Jesus called them hypocrites. They came to find fault and they found fault based upon their traditions that have nothing to do with a biblical basis for righteousness. They took those outward things and considered them righteous acts of righteousness morally. In other words, it's good to wash your hands, but it doesn't make you morally better than someone who does not. And that's how they were. And that's what religion does. So eventually, through all their traditions and their extra biblical writings, these religious leaders had interpretations of scriptures that eventually, through due time, contradicted scriptures. We've already seen this with the Sabbath and the conflicts over Sabbath, but to honor the Sabbath was one of Ten Commandments, to take a day off and be refreshed by the Lord. The Sabbath was from the Lord to benefit humanity, to rest in the Lord and protect them from overworking and, and not being refreshed through what we need. God rested on the seventh day, and therefore he set a model for us to do the same in the Jews in their covenant in the Old Testament particularly. But these same people made hundreds of sub-commandments from a simple principle meant to benefit man under the covenant of the Old Testament, and it became a bondage and a burden. So it became a bondage against anything good, but then they would rewrite things to their own advantage. So again, they'd save an animal if it fell in a pit on the Sabbath, but they didn't consider it a good thing for Jesus to heal a man with a withered arm on the Sabbath. Their thinking got twisted, and that's what traditions of men do when you place them over the word of God. Now, Jesus did not answer the question. Did you catch that? And I've talked about this when this comes up. So often, we're pressed by the tyranny of the urgent. When people come to us, what about this and what about that? And people push our buttons at work, in our family, at home, in the neighborhood. Or people come with questions, and when you even start to answer one question, they're already asking another question and not listening to your answer, and maybe you've experienced those things, especially in a religious context. You can tell when someone's really seeking for the things of the Lord because they'll ask questions from someone with sincerity to hear the response to those questions. But some people ask questions to justify themselves in their unbelief and are self-condemning questions. Notice how Jesus does not answer their questions. He does not feel obligated. He is not obligated, and nor are you at times to answer questions when they're uh, maliciously based or moved by unbelief to attack or whatever. We already saw on Saturday night when Jesus stood before Herod the Tetrarch, and Herod said, do this and do that. It says Jesus didn't speak one word to him. Now, he engaged Pilate, but he did not engage Herod the Tetrarch. He didn't say one word. We're told he didn't say one word. We're not obligated to the tyranny of what other people put on us. What we are obligated to is to obey God as best we can discern from what he's revealed in his word and what he's speaking to our hearts by his Holy Spirit on a daily basis. 
Remember in Mark chapter 1 when disciples at that time came to Jesus, hey, everyone's looking for you. We need to do this and we need to do that. He was already up early in the morning praying. And he said, no, 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 that's not what we're doing. This is what we're doing. But they came to him like, this is what we think you should be doing. And no, this is what we need to be doing. And it's important that we seek the Lord because the greatest resources we have is our time and our energy and then our other resources that we might have. And people impose their will and their demands upon our personal lives for time, energy, and resources. And we need to make sure that those belong to the Lord in the dawn of the morning before people hijack them from us based upon the tyranny of the urgent and what people think. And what about this and what about that? And we need discernment when we know, do we engage this person with this question or this issue or do we let this go and not deal with, and just, it's not ours to deal with. It's not our stewardship. And I just got to point out an application. These men came to Jesus And they said, why do you do this and that? And the question had no merit, no basis, and no landing for Jesus Christ. Catch that. He didn't even answer it. There's no need for him to answer this question. There is no purpose in answering this question. And I think there's a good example for us in our lives. This happens in our lives. Some some questions are so malicious in their unbelief and their purpose and agenda and motives, we do well. Because you feel like, you know, some of us are a certain way. We have a checklist person. We're a checklist person. So we want to answer every email. We want to answer every text message. We want to return every phone call. I tried to do that in the ministry early on, and I realized, well, you can't do it. You just can't. Can you imagine Pastor Chuck at Calvary Coast Mesa back in the day trying to respond to every imposed perception of how his time should be spent for other people that they imposed upon him, let alone someone like Greg Laurie in the current day or Rick Warren or someone like that? You need to know, and you need to be discerning. And I really appreciate that Jesus said, he didn't answer the questions, he quoted scripture for him. And he said, and he didn't withhold anything. He said, Isaiah spoke well of you, prophesying of you that you're hypocrites. And he called them out for their hypocrisy. And that hypocrisy was to add their traditions over the word of God. So we would say the New Testament equivalent is Jesus plus water baptism this way. Jesus plus speaking in tongues or you're not saved type of a thing. Just, it, just taking away what's so clear and simple and making it complicated. And many denominations do that. Many people do that. We can do that. Jesus plus verse by verse through the Bible. It's wise to teach verse by verse through the Bible, but not all ministries teach systematically the Calvary chapels are known to do that we have great fellowship with them as they believe the gospel and believe the word of God is the inspired word of God. But, you know, it's like you can very easily make traditions come to a place where you begin to see something a certain way long enough that that's the way it should always be. For example, when we don't do a food and fellowship at the end of the month, which has happened only a few times, people show up and they're upset. We've had people complain to us that they came on the last service of the month to get the food and they're like, they're, they're mad that we didn't do the food. And it's like, well, there's a biblical basis for that one in there. You know, it's like, hey, we're back for food day two. You know, John chapter six, seven, you know, the, and it's like, hey, you know, hey, I don't know what to say, but you got the word of God, which is better than the temporal. But anyways, it's really easy to get traditions and we just have to be careful. Now, in the context here, Jesus gave an example. So the example was honor your father and your mother. Now, those of you helping out with your elderly parents, like I'm currently involved in, and some of you have been or are, you know it's very demanding. It's demanding on your time. It's demanding on your energy. And it can be even, in some cases, demanding on your resources. The Bible, we're called to honor our parents. And honor your father and mother takes a different look as time goes on 
when you're elementary age or a teenager or a young adult, but then when you're in your 40s or 50s and your parents are on the back end and they're losing their freedoms because they can't maintain those freedoms, it's, it's a reverse order because it's almost like toddlers in the reverse direction. They need care. Often they, need to, they, they, they can't go to the bathroom on their own anymore. They forget things. It's reverse order. And I didn't catch this till most recently in the last few years of my life that I realized, like, this is reverse order. You almost become the parent of your parents because they, they need the help. And it's reality. So if you don't know this reality, I'm telling you, it's coming your way. It's the human experience. And honor your father and your mother takes on a very unique look when you're taking care of your elderly parents in their 70s or 80s as their health is failing them. Well, what these guys did is, it, is they, they said, well, what you would do to give to help your parents, they were taking it for the, saying it was the name of the Lord, but they were fleecing the people and keeping it for themselves. So see, you don't need to give that money to your parents. You give it to us because it's dedicated to the Lord because we've got to keep the ministry going, right? Remember what Chuck Smith used to say about when someone says, you don't give this ministry, it's going to die. He'd say, let it die. God's not broke, okay? But there's all kinds of charlatans and manipulations people use in all fields of life, not just religion, but in the medical field, legal field, to just name a couple, political fields. We understand that. But what they were doing is they put a spiritual twist like, hey, it's Corbin, it belongs to the Lord, so you don't have to take care of your parents. Like, well, you, your tradition has made null and void the word of God to honor your father and your mother on an obvious thing, to honor your father and your mother. But what's interesting to me is he says, and not just that, you do many other such things. Did you catch that there in verse 13? And many such things you do. So it wasn't just like, I mean, to take the Ten Commandments, to honor your father and your mother, the most basic revealed truths of God, to take one of the most basic ones, the first one we, we begin to understand in life is the authority, God-ordained authority. And it serves a purpose all through journey of life. And then we have this test that we never get again once our parents step into eternity to demonstrate this in their elderly age if we get to that place. To take something that's so honorable, that's such an opportunity that you never get again in life, and to have religious leaders twist it and misuse it that you don't actually honor your father and mother the way you should with their religious uh, affirmation of it, that they can steal the money is damnable on the highest level. But many such things you do. So the application is simple. Keep it pure. Keep it pure with Jesus. It's Jesus for salvation. It's his word to be thoroughly equipped for everything pertaining to life and godliness. Celebrate and appreciate the diversity of different movements and whatnot. I love what Pastor Brian Broderson, uh, his vision at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa this year, what he said recently at a pastor's breakfast, that one of the visions of Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa going forward this year, the vision is, is that they're a, they're a Jesus church. So it's, it's loving Jesus and preaching the gospel. But the second thing was that they're a universal church and it's, and it's appreciating the diversity of the body of Christ. And he talked about how in Israel there's 12 tribes and they weren't meant to be the same tribes. There's a reason Naphtali is in the north and Judah's in the south because that's where God put them. And those tribes had distinctions with different types of things that they would contribute to the overall health of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And Brian talked about how that's how the body of Christ is. We need to appreciate the diversity in the body of Christ and not try to isolate ourselves as the only tribe that has it figured out because we have the word of God in our traditions. So be careful you're not an isolationist tribe where you've got it figured out and your traditions and no one else does. 
And I remember sharing with Guy Grimes when he was here at Shoreline, the pastor of Shoreline Baptist. I said, Guy, you know, sometimes Calvary guys really think they're it and no one else is. And he goes, well, that's nothing because Southern Baptists are the same way. And I go, no, 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 guy, really, if you've ever been to a Calvary conference, we, we tend to think we're really, we're really it. And he goes, let me tell you, if you've ever been to the Southern Baptist Convention, I can assure you, we are it. Okay? You know, so it's not just, you know, it's, it's, how, it's how we move. It's how we gravitate that we're here and everyone else has to figure out to get where we're at. And we'll put traditions above the word if we need to to do that. Don't do that. Okay? We don't want to do that. Right? So I want to bring a positive from this. It's a pretty serious confrontation. And Jesus is like, I don't need to answer your question. I'm going to call you hypocrites. You do this with a lot of things. Here's an example of what you do. Hey, if you make a point, back it up, right? And Jesus backed it up. So we just want to keep it, keep it pure and, and loving and, and, and gracious. And we don't want to be fault finders. We want to look for the good and we want to build up people. And man, we want to, we want to be saved by grace and live in grace. And it doesn't mean we don't say what needs to be said. Look at Jesus in the text. It just means, you know, we need to respect and value diversity and distinction in the body of Christ. Verse 14, we read on. Now, when he had called all the multitude to himself, so it's all the multitude, notice that. He said to them, hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from the outside that can defile him, but the things which come out of him. Those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he said to them, are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart, men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. So Jesus is breaking it down very simple here, that it's not what we eat that could defile us morally. Now, it might defile us otherwise, <laughs> but I'm here to teach a study on healthy food and unhealthy food. It's what comes out of the heart. So the stomach processes things physically, but the heart reveals things spiritually. The stomach is temporal, physically, serves a purpose with food and then the drives of the, of the human body, the, the natural drives, air, water, food, bowels and sexual. Those are the five drives, the main drives of the human experience. And the last one to go is the breath, right? So if, if your body breaks down, down the stretch and you live long enough, those are natural drives that God has put in a natural physical universe that we live in, in time, space, and matter that we have on our timeline. Those are drives that God has given and they're, they're good things that he's given us the way he's designed us physically. The, pretty much the entire gospel of John is Jesus saying something that has a spiritual meaning from a physical background. You drink from this water, you'll thirst again. But if you drink from the water I give you, you'll never thirst. Water, physical drive, spiritual, the living water, Jesus. You eat this bread, they came back for food the second day, the free food. You eat this bread, you'll hunger again. But the bread I give you, will fill you and satisfy you. They're like, give us this bread. And he goes, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness. I am the bread of life. Okay? And unless you eat of my, my body and my blood, you cannot be my disciples. And it says it was a hard saying. And that famous verse 666, John, many disciples withdrew from him. But it wasn't the physical, it was the spiritual. Even when Caesar persecuted the Christians in the first couple centuries, the Caesars, they would say Christians were cannibals because of that saying of Jesus. But it wasn't the physical, it was the spiritual. He said to Nicodemus, a man must be born again. He goes, well, how can I go back to my mother's womb? See, physical. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. 
spiritual. This is the, the constant battle Jesus had. So it's not what you eat that defiles you. It's what comes out of your heart, spiritual, eating, temporal, out of the heart, spiritual, revealing. Now, our words reveal our heart, for out of the abundance of a heart does a man or a woman speak. So you don't know what's in your heart, watch your words. Listen to your words, and you'll see what's in your heart, okay? You, as you grow in the Lord, you kind of fine-tune your frequency to catch things like, wow, I just said that? Like, that's not good. And you realize, like, hey, I'm sorry about that. You know, you, you get that filter going. But the Bible says out of, that the matters of life proceed from the heart, and we're to guard our hearts. The prophet said, the heart is deceitful, deceitfully wicked, and who can know it? There's an inner woman. There's an inner man that's our heart. It's like, it's our, it's our inner person. It's who we are. We've pointed this out. The Bible says if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not in your head. A lot of people have an intellectual religious experience, but conversion is in the heart. The Bible tells us that God literally indwells us. And we know that the Holy Spirit speaks to our heart, that he will put something on our heart. Even this morning, I was praying about something, looking at the book of Matthew, my devotion, and I I prayed about something, and immediately the Lord put in my heart a, a Bible verse related that's a word to a situation we're trying to analyze and understand in our ministry decisions right now. Immediately it was there. He put the word right in my heart. Thy word, O Lord, I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And he spoke it right away. It hadn't been on my mind for any purposes. That is the Lord right there. It just spoke to my heart. And, you know, or you, had, you all of a sudden your heart's kind of anxious about something. And it's like the Holy Spirit saying, hey, don't sign that paperwork. The Holy Spirit does that. He speaks to our heart. Now, also, we could even use, even without the Lord, that when someone has, we don't say they have a broken head. We say they have a broken heart, right? Like, she broke my head. Well, she might have done that too, but she broke your heart, you know, okay, <laughs> right? Or like the heart, you feel it, like, you, you know, just the anguish, the, the, the mind's the intellect, but the heart, you feel it. And it's interesting that Paul the Apostle gave us a really good insight implied in Second Corinthians how to guard our heart. But he said to take every thought captive and obedient to Christ that would exalt itself against the knowledge of Christ and the glorious gospel. So we get all kinds of thoughts. It's like the computer. It's like the tabs when you're on any website. It's like uh, emails coming in from every direction or bad things trying to come into your Instagram and these types of stuff. All these things are coming at you like your mind. That's what your mind's like. And you see things that you don't want to see. There's just sometimes you see things. You don't wake up, you know, most of us don't wake up and say, I'd like to see something bad. I mean, that's why the the psalmist said, I purpose not to put any evil thing before my eyes, okay? But there are things that you see that you didn't want to see, but you see it. I mean, uh, it happens in life. It just happens where you see something violent you didn't want to see. You see a horrific car accident you want to see. You see something malicious you didn't want to see. You see a fight that you didn't want to see. You see a conflict and you try and get away from it that you didn't want to see. You, you, you maybe saw an image, uh, a sexual image you didn't want to see, various things like that. Like Most of us don't wake up and say, man, I hope I can see something really evil today. That's not why you're at church on Tuesday night. That's generally not you know, how we're wired because it just, it's inconsistent with the new nature. But still, we can be tempted by those things. We understand that. And the devil knows that. He looked for an opportune time to tempt us. The key is to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. That is the key. I mean, when, when James was led by the Holy Spirit, he said to resist the devil and he will flee. So if you combine James and Paul and the Holy Spirit speaking through both of them, we resist the devil and we submit our thoughts to the Lord. And when that power surge is coming, you just have to submit those things to the Lord. Take those thoughts captive in obedience to Christ. Whether... 
what are the thoughts? We, we saw that list there. That evil thoughts is the first on the list, isn't it? Evil thoughts. But adulteries begin in the heart. Jesus taught that in the Sermon on the Mount, which would put fornication in the same category. Murders begins in the heart with unforgiveness. And then you go through thefts. That's covetousness. Thefts and covetousness would be linked together. And wickedness in general, just wicked people. And then deceit, deceitfulness, lewdness. And then an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. That, that's, that's, in the old na- that's in the nature that we're born with as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. From, from our father, the head of the race, Adam, we receive that sinful nature. It's in every cell of our DNA. But when we're born again, old things have passed away, all things are new, and the flesh and the spirit, they war against each other, but the spirit is looking to replace that in our life. So as we draw near to the Lord, as we abide in Christ, as his word abides in us, we begin to flush these things out and purify things, and we're setting our mind on those things that are praiseworthy and virtuous and honorable and noble before the Lord. So when those attacks come, like bad information or bad things, we take them captive. That's how we fight that battle. It's a spiritual battle for the mind. And I mentioned this when I had my surgery on my ear six months ago, and I listened to all kinds of Pastor Chuck messages. There was one that really resonated with me where he talked about laying in bed and, and thinking malicious thoughts, how to get back at people who had tried to destroy him. And believe me, Pastor Chuck had a lot of people try to destroy him. There's a lot of people that were very maliciously intended to destroy Pastor Chuck, the servant of the Lord. That just goes without saying. And you, you do, you know, you, you, we're all human. And he talked about how he had to work through those thoughts, like that the thought would start running. And, you know, Chuck was a brilliant man, right? He was going to be a doctor. I mean, how, he's one of the smartest people I ever knew, personally. I mean, Pastor Chuck Smith was a brilliant man, incre- really high IQ, and didn't do drugs or smoke weed or drink or anything like that, you know. So he pretty much had everything rolling right to the end that he could have. You know, and he was a gracious man. But when I heard him talking about in a Bible study in the early 70s about how he would think how he could get back at someone and he'd start to go down a, a roadmap of how he could do it, I was like, wow, I feel better because I'm tempted to do that all the time. Like, I could, I could never believe, I could see me thinking like that, you know, stewing over something like, and plotting the perfect revenge on someone. But then, if you're mature in the Lord, you start to think, like, well, I want to get even with them, because it's like Jesus on the cross, they don't even know what they're doing anyways. And if they do, they're still deceived to do it. But we do that. We, we plot. We plot things. We have to take those thoughts captive. So the way to cut off the evil in the heart, because it's not what we eat that's going to defile us, it's what comes in at our mind that we let pass the filter of our mind and comes through. Working with Luke on the DJ board. Okay, Luke's a musical genius, our youngest son. Musical genius. He's just a genius in general. And he's, we've got a DJ board and we're working on stuff. And he's explaining all these things that these do, different things on the DJ board, but he's talking about the bass filter and the treble filter. And he's explaining like they'll filter the bass and the treble, these knobs down here. And I was like, just taking note of everything. And that's what we need to have a base and a treble filter. They're actually filters. They're extra filters. He's like, this is what Ryland does. See, he was talking about you, Ryland. Ryland understands all this stuff. This is what Ryland's doing, the EQs and all this. But the base and the treble filter serve this purpose, like a safety net, so you're not overloading uh, this portion because you want quality mix all the time, no matter what you want the quality music. And I thought, wow, you know, that's like our mind. is like a base filter and a treble filter. We need to filter the vindictiveness for revenge. We need to filter the perversion for lust. We need to filter these things. We need the extra filters as it's coming in, like, hey, filter it here, but if it gets past there, we need these filters to catch it so it doesn't get in the heart and cause us to do bad things. Because really, does someone just do something completely spontaneously that's going to wreck their life? Usually, they've embraced the thought, played with the thought before they run with the thought. We need the filters. 
And the word of God and the Holy Spirit are our filters. So it's not what goes in that defiles us, it's what comes out. So we need to filter our minds and stay sharp, take every thought captive and obedient to Christ. And he also said to the Romans, I urge you to present yourself a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service, and not to be conformed to this world, but to be what? Transformed by the renewing of your minds. Correct. Same, same thought process. We pick up in verse 24. So after all that, that was connected, those two passages. Now in verse 24, from there, he, Jesus, arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. For a woman whose whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syro-Phoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For this saying, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she'd come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. This is an interesting story. This is in the Synoptic Gospels. This is, it's in the other Gospels. And it's, it's an interesting story because we know that Jesus is the king of the Jews. I mean, we've got him on the cross on Saturday night right now. We're in Luke 23. He's on the cross, and it says king of the Jews in you know, Latin, Hebrew, and Greek. So he's the king of the Jews. We know that he was prophesied to come to the Jews. We know when Paul wrote the Romans, he said that the gospel is to the Jew first, then the Gentiles, all other people groups. God set the Jewish people aside with a covenant with him. They were entrusted with the scriptures and all the promises. The descendants of Abraham, 2000 B.C., the Mosaic Covenant through Moses, 1500 B.C., after they came out of the slavery in Egypt, and that covenant to the time of Christ. We, we understand that. The Jewish the covenant. We know when he sent out the 12, he instructed them where not to go, and he told them not to go to the Gentiles. The presentation of the gospel came first to the Jews and then to the ends of the earth. Now, when Jesus was resurrected, there in Matthew 28, he says to the apostles, go therefore to all nations, preaching the gospel. He said in Mark's gospel, we're told, he said to every creature, to the ends of the earth. The book of Acts, the historical record of the early church, is a transition of a Jewish mindset church to a semi-Jewish mindset to a global church. It's 30 years of the church realizing that there's no place for sexism or racism against the things of God in people's lives to the ends of the world. And that's what the gospel brings is the liberation of those, of those faulty prejudices in any society. That's what the gospel does. It really is liberating. For whom the sun sets free is free indeed. And Christ liberates men and women from sin and to their proper order that he's designed from the beginning of creation before the fall. And it's a beautiful thing. There was a time for the Gentiles, but this is not the time. He's still, and it's interesting because, you know, there, we all get a lot of ministry ideas. I'm looking around here and I know a lot of you. And I know a lot of you think of a lot of different ministry ideas. You know, we get ideas like, okay, we could do this, we could do that. And, and, you know, I get all kinds of ideas like, we could do this and we could do that. You know, it's like, oh, we could, hmm, how do we go and tell? How do we get people to come and see? And I'm always thinking about ideas with the gospel and how to get it out. But one of the tricky things in ministry is realizing as much as realizing what ministry you're called to is recognizing which ministries you are not called to. You don't go to college to be a, a, when you're 19 to be a major in four different <laughs> majors, right? That's when you bounce around, it takes you eight years, and you, you know, you got all these units that don't transfer it. You know, like, that, that happens. <laughs> we laugh, but it happens. It usually costs the parents money. It's reality. Just stay with me. I just call it the way it is, and you know that. But at any rate, when you think about these things, and you think about this woman in the order, it was not really her time for the gospel. But, you know, what's ironic, what does the Bible say in, in to the Corinthians, the second Corinthians? Today, 
is the day of salvation. And, you know, Jesus brought salvation to this woman and her, her daughter that day. But I asked questions like, well, what did this woman do that her daughter became demon-possessed, right? Because that's not the normal. That's usually when you get involved in the occult. That's usually how that happens. I mean, it doesn't have to be that way, but it certainly seems to be that way. In many cases, there's something dabbling in the dark side, and then you're given over. But let's just presume that's not the case. But this woman found out Jesus was there. He could not be hidden. She sought him out, and Jesus said, yeah, but it's not, you know, it's not, it's not too good to take the bread and give it to the dogs. Now, remember, Jews wouldn't even eat with Gentiles. Remember when Peter had the vision to go eat with the, or he had the vision of the, the unclean animals in Acts chapter 10? And Jesus says, take, eat. No, I never would. Take, eat. I never would. Take, eat. Okay. Go with these men, doubting nothing. He goes to the house of Cornelius. He's a Gentile, ruler of 100 Romans. He goes in the house and he goes, you know, it's not permitted for me to be in your house and be with you. But God has told me to go to you now, doubting nothing. The idea that the Jews were of covenant. Remember the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman with the, the six husbands and living with another man? She said, oh, we do this and we do that. We worship here and there. And Jesus goes, hey, salvation's of the Jews. Let's get that straight right now. But the day's coming when we'll worship in spirit and in truth. He set her straight on faulty theology and then told her good news to come. And some people are offended, like, wow, you know, people that criticize Jesus in the Bible. Why would he say to call people dogs? Hey, listen, I know a lot of people that act like dogs. And so do you. There's a lot of people on this planet that live on an animal plane and how they talk to people, how they treat people, and how they live their lives. In fact, Paul talked about it as being brute beast, right? But, you know, she wasn't put off by this. She's like, yeah, that's right. That's right. But even the dogs get the crumbs, the leftovers. She just took a human principle and says, hey, you know, somebody throws the stale bread to the dogs. We know that. Can I get something? And this is like the woman grabbing the tassel of Jesus and being healed. Because this, that phrase revealed faith in her heart. We talked about this last week. Last week in chapter 6, the chapter begins with unbelief in Nazareth when Jesus is rejected by his own people. And it ends with faith in the end of the chapter. We saw that. As many as touched him were made well. That's the last phrase of the previous chapter. It started with unbelief and it ends with people touching being made well. And lo and behold, here's this woman's like, okay, I get it. Yep. I'm a dog, whatever. But can I get the crumbs? Because even the dogs get the crumbs. And I'll take whatever you're willing to do for me. And Jesus said, hey, it's, you know, it's random. Let me just say this. This is random. This was not, this was out of order. This was not the normal order. Like God is a God of order. The tabernacle, the temple, order. Paul to Titus, set in order things that are lacking. Okay? God is a God of order. But you know, he does random things. Go to that fish. You'll find the coin in the fish. Pay the tax for both of us. Right? He does random things. Talking donkeys. He does random things. Because he's God, and he knows what he wants to do. This just shows me and reminds me that God values faith in the heart from anybody. When the thief on the cross says, we're here rightfully so. He had a change of heart on the cross. If you, don't, if you harmonize the Gospels, he was taunting Jesus, and then he had a change of heart. And then he turns to the other criminal, and he goes, hey, we're here rightfully. We are guilty. He is innocent. Lord, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. God always honors a tender heart and a believing heart that looks to him. And he knows the heart, and he knows the motives of the heart. And I just love how he did this for this woman. I think it's a beautiful story. Her daughter was delivered. Can you imagine when she went home? Jesus said it, and she believed it. And she goes home and sees her daughter. Her daughter, who was demented by a demon spirit, restored to full health. 
Think of all the daughters that have broken, that, you know, have caused heartache for their parents from bad decisions. Or you just feel like you have daughters that have grown up and been deceived by bad men or drugs and alcohol or various things. Can you imagine the joy of this mother coming home from all that heartache and sorrow to see her daughter restored in her right mind? Uh, Jesus, man, he does everything good. Which is our last verse. Verse 31. Again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, so that was up in the Lebanon area, he went way to the north. He came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee, and then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude, put his finger in his ears, spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and he said, Epiphatha, that is, be opened. Immediately his ears were open and the impediment of his tongue was loosened and he spoke plainly. And then he commanded them that they should tell no one. But the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. It is prophesied in the Old Testament that when the Messiah comes, he will make the deaf to hear, the blind to see, all that stuff. This is affirmation and fulfillment of prophecies concerning the Messiah, that the people the people were confessing what Jesus was doing as fulfillment of what it was said in the Old Testament the Messiah would do. So the testimony is coming from the people. I liked how he said, be open, and we think about where Jesus said, in Revelation, that you know, he opens the door to the Church of Philadelphia, open a door that no man can close, and it closes a door that no man can open. And it's important for us to just take to heart to realize that what needs to be opened by the Lord in our life, He'll open it. He says to seek, knock, and ask. He will open it. He will open it. He will make a way for the, for those who sincerely seek after the Lord and want to serve the Lord and honor the Lord with their lives. He opens the doors. He opens miraculous doors, and He opens them. For those who, are, who have prepared themselves to go through those doors according to his will. So just because all the odds are against you and doesn't seem possible, he makes a way. He opens the eyes. He opens the ears. He opens the mouth, the, the tongue to speak. He opens the door of opportunity. Where there's a closed door, he opens doors. That's what he does. All authority he has. And he spoke to that church in the book of Revelation. And it's a reminder that when we feel like we're just at a, we're boxed in. He makes a way. When, when Moses and the Jews were at the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army was coming after them, they were boxed in between the Red Sea, Paharoth and Migdal, and the Pharaoh's army was coming at full strength. And he cried out to the Lord, and God miraculously parted the Red Sea because the water stood like a wall. And they went through that. God opens things. And I know the context is he's opening the, the ears and the mouth. But just to see in your red letters when Jesus says, look at what it says there if you have a red letter Bible, be open. Be open. He speaks open things that need to be open. He makes a way. When you read like the testimonies of people like Brother Andrew and going to the behind the Iron Curtain during the communist era, and he would find a way to get in there and get the Bibles to these people and these stories of the book, God's Smuggler, Brother Andrew, is a Christian classic and the doors that God opens. And I want to encourage us to not be discouraged by closed doors. There's a, there's a, you know, obviously there's a world-renowned mission group called Open Doors, and God opens doors. Don't let what you see discourage you when it, you think God's leading a certain way, but, but trust him, and, and if he keeps it closed, he keeps it closed, but you take a step of faith, that's, that's sometimes how the door opens, but know this, the people said it well, he does all things well, 
all things well. Not some things well, all things well. That's a true testimony. See, Jesus wouldn't take testimony from demons. He doesn't need their testimony because they don't have one. They're not redeemed. But the people saying he has done all things well, that's a valid testimony. And I just want to remind us before we move to communion tonight, just to remind us, as you think about your life, today's my 31st wedding anniversary. Some, may, some of you may know that. Jennifer and I have been married 31 years today. We got married March 12, uh, 1988. Yeah, a little quiet applause. But, uh, and we have our oldest daughter, Hannah, here. She flew out this week to be with us from Florida, so we're blessed to have her. That's our gift, to have our oldest daughter here with us. Reflecting And Dwayne Sweeten, our good friend, turned 50 today. So some of you know the Sweeten family. Dwayne turned 50 today. And I thought, well, Dwayne Sweeten turned 50. And uh, he's got more kids than I can count on my hands, I think. I've lost track. There's so many of them. And uh, we love him so much. And, but he turned 50, and we're celebrating our 31st wedding anniversary. And i and I just, just so blessed. I think of everything God's done in my life. And I, I can testify he does all things well. He does all things well. Everything Jesus Christ does in our life is good. But David said, taste and see that the Lord is good. And many of you could stand up and say, amen, Joey. He does all things well. And if you think there's some things he hasn't done well, just wait. The book's not finished. It'll all be made well. Where there's no more tears and no more sorrows. And you will say on the day of the Lord, he does all things well. Hey, but why not say it in time, huh? Why not in faith speak that truth in time? He does all things well. The songs we're going to sing in the next few moments, we're testifying. He does all things well. The bread and the cup up front that we partake of, we're saying he does all things well. He takes the Passover lamb, this beautiful feast of the Old Testament, and he makes it the new covenant, the new and everlasting covenant. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's why this cup represents his blood, not the blood of the the Passover lamb that you put over the front door and on the side door, because Jesus died once for all, and his blood sufficiently saves once for all. This bread, it's not the lamb that you eat before the sun rises under the Passover feast. It's his body given for us that we might have eternal life. He does all things well. So come to the table tonight rejoicing in the Lord, rejoicing in his goodness, his promises, and just be affirmed in your heart that he does all things well. Whatever is awkward or difficult for you right now, give it to the Lord and say, Lord Jesus, we believe you do all things well, and we know you will.